1: hello and welcome again to the explaining history podcast What I like to do from time to time in this podcast is look at these conventional narratives that we tell ourselves that we've been kind of that have been popularly disseminated uh, and to really examine sort of revisionist accounts. And there's a kind of a really good example of this Um, that comes from uh, the military historian Max Hastings, looking at the um, effect of uh, U-boat wolf packs uh, during the Second World War and the uh, damage done to Allied shipping from... The US and Canada to Great Britain. Um, the, the popular view is that by 1941, 1942, the effects of um, shipping being sunk were pushing the country towards emergency measures and rationing uh, and hardship and hunger. And that um, you know, Churchill popularly said the Battle of the Atlantic was the only battle of the war that ever truly frightened him um, and that had it been lost then Britain would have had to uh, had to have kind of capitulated now the extent to which this is true is is challenged by some of the arguments put forward by Max Hastings in All Hell Let Loose that we're going to explore now um, and in his chapter on Great Britain at Sea he argues that in fact actually the um, the war that was um per, that was prosecuted by uh admiral Karl dernitz the head of the uh the u boat command uh, of the the german Kriegsmarine, um was very very um badly done for the most part um and done with kind of immense kind of inadequacy that um, Dönitz didn't really anticipate waging this kind of a war in the uh, Atlantic, much as the German Luftwaffe didn't really anticipate having to wage a campaign of mass bombing, or mass terror bombing o- over Great Britain which is not really equipped for. Um, Small short range uh, U-boats that were the bulk of the um, Kriegsmarine's U-boat force um, were designed to operate from German bases. They were um, not really designed for the the kinds of conditions, the kinds of journeys they were taking out out into in, into the Atlantic. But much of what Hitler is, Hitler does is uh, kind of improvisational. He's fighting a war that he didn't expect to fight. Um, there's a really great account in um, uh, Blood and Ruins by Richard Overy, which I'm going to talk about more on this podcast pretty soon. About how his, you know, his his thesis that um, Hitler, Mussolini, and the uh, imperial uh, government in Tokyo all wanted to fight limited wars of imperial expansion, carving out their own spheres of influence, and they were not looking to fight global conflicts. Now this is a contested area, but um, the inability of of Germany to adapt fully to global conflict. Um, and to have the, right, the, the, the equipment there to do it um, would sort of point in that direction. Um, production in Germany's shipyards hampered by shortages of steel and skilled labour and later by bombing fell below British levels, argues Max Hastings. U-boats remained technically primitive. Innovation, for instance, in 1944 um, uh, the, the 1944-45 Schnorkel underwater air replenishment system was not matched by reliability. The revolutionary Type uh, Twenty-One U-boat sails on its first war patrol only on the thirtieth of April, nineteen forty, and of course the war ends uh, eight days later. So Max Hastings writes. Thus Dernitz's force lacked uh, mass, range and quality. Just as the Luftwaffe in nineteen forty to forty uh, one attempted to deal a knockout blow to Britain with wholly inadequate resources, so the U-boat arm lacked strength to accomplish the severance of the Atlantic Link. Germany never built anything like enough submarines to make them a war winning weapon. Dönitz calculated that he needed six hundred needed to six to sink six hundred thousand tons of British shipping a month in order to achieve a decisive victory for which he required 300 U-boats in commission to sustain a third of that number in operational areas. Yet the 13 U-boats that were on station in August 1940, falling to 8 in January 1941, rising to 21 the following month. This small force inflicted impressive destruction. Two million tonnes of British shipping were sunk between June 1940 and March 1941. But in the same period, just 72 new U-boats were delivered far shorter the number dirates needed. They achieved the highest rate of productivity measured by tonnage sunk per submarine at sea in October 1940. Thereafter, while many boats were de- more, many more boats were deployed, their pro-rata achievements were uh, diminished. As the war developed, while the Allied navies grew apace in skill and professionalism, the quality and determination of U-boat crews declined. One by one, Dönitz's aces were killed or captured, and the men who replaced them were of lesser calibre. German torpedo technology was almost as flawed as that of the 1942-43 US Navy. I think we've covered this in in the past. Um, Direction of the U-boat campaign was hampered by changing strategies and impulsive interventions by Hitler. German naval intelligence and grasp of Allied strategy, tactics and technology were chronically weak. It is a remarkable and important statistic that 99% of the ships which sailed from North America to Britain during the war years arrived safely. So there we have a really, really interesting kind of revisionist uh, revisionist argument. I mean, part of the um, part of the issue with our kind of Collective uh, recollection of the war at sea is its popularisation. Um, it's made for many incredible war movies, um, not not to mention obviously *Das Boot*, which looks at it from the uh, the perspective of a German U-boat crew. But I think there are there are two interesting takeaways there. Firstly, is the rapidity of decline of German uh, successes from 1940 onwards, from the uh, the peak month of October nineteen forty, German U-boat aces. Um, there was a, there were only really a kind of a fixed number of uh, super talented commanders. The, uh, the this points to uh, Germany's um, lack of capacity for, for replacing these sorts of uh, these sorts of individuals. It's all fine and well to have um, a generation of talented people in your army or your navy. But the, the skill that America particularly mastered was the, the mass production of high-caliber airmen, naval officers um, uh, and, and, and military commanders. Um, there, there's a kind of an interesting uh, comparison between uh, the US Air Force uh, in, in the Pacific And the Japanese Air Force, the Japanese Air Force, limited the number of uh, pilots uh, that they had because these were seen as prestige positions. These were, you know, the proverbial samurai. Whereas um, America mass-trained high-quality pilots um, and mass-produced aircraft in a way that Japan couldn't. The inability to replace top-caliber submarine crews... Uh, and the the lack of um manufacturing output to create sufficient numbers of u boats um is is a really really telling as as it comes to germany hitler deprioritized the kriegsmarine this was uh, for him in in terms of material the army came first the air force came second and the the navy a third he wasn't a a, a, a navy man um, and didn't particularly see how the the navy fitted into his his overall plans which were the conquest of Russia all the way up to the Volga River so uh, I mean he obviously he, he didn't completely dismiss the navy either and it says there. Hitler's later interventions sort of his, his in interfering in matters of strategy that he didn't really understand. Um, this had an effect you know, on, on all three branches of the, 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 the German military. The other thing there is this um, startling statistic that 99% of all ships that cross the Atlantic arrive safely. You have to remember that the war in the Atlantic doesn't last from 1939 to 45. Um, by kind of mid to late 1942, it's really being won. 1942 is the key battleground year. So, if you were a sailor in 41-42, it's entirely possible. This is really dangerous, and the attrition rate is significantly higher uh, if you're a, a, a merchant vessel at that time. However, the the, the the statistics kind of shift in favour of that 99% figure as we go into the, the years of uh, you know, 1943, 44, 45. And of course in those years, um, the, the flow of troops and material coming across the Atlantic dramatically increases. So it's not to say that um, the, year nine, the, the, the 99% figure isn't correct, But you have to kind of look at it in in context of of what was happening. Um, Max Hastings writes, Even in the bad days of April 1941, for instance, 307 merchantmen sailed in convoy, uh, of which only 16 were sunk, together with a further 11 unescorted vessels. In June that year, 383 ships made the Atlantic uh, passage, in convoys um, of which submarines attacked only one, sinking six ships, along with a further 22 unescorted merchantmen. In 1942, by far the most alarming year uh, of the U-Boat War, 609 ships were sunk in the North Atlantic, a total of some six million tonnes. So prodigious was um, was American shipbuilding capacity, however, that in the same period, allies launched 7.1 million tons of ships, increasing their available pool of 30 um, of 30 million tons. So, uh, a yeah, part of the story here is again America's enormous productive capacity, the building of Liberty ships, which sometimes uh, sometimes took a matter of days to put together, um, and the. The, the ability of Roosevelt to have redirected almost the entire productive capacity of the United States to um, war production, um, a feat of transformation which kind of makes the, the, the New Deal years look kind of comparatively minor in, in, in terms of resource allocation and state intervention uh, and all the rest. So it's an extraordinary achievement. Um, and it is, you know, one of those things when you, you think about the uh, the course of the Second World War and almost the kind of the, 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 the kind of ine- I don't use the word inevitability lightly, but it, there seems to be very little argument that Germany could ever have finally stood up against the productive capacity of the USA. Despite all of this, there is this kind of assumption, and there was an assumption at the time, particularly... Uh, in the um, US and British navies and uh, from Roosevelt and Churchill as well that uh, the Allies were doing particularly badly at sea and and all was, you know, uh, very, very bleak. Max Hastings writes, Yet, as is the way of mankind, the Allies perceived most of the difficulties on their own side, while posterity knows that in 1942 the U-boats inflicted the utmost damage of which they were capable, and that thereafter the tide of the convoy war turned steadily against them. At the time Churchill and Roosevelt saw only a steep rising graph of losses which, if it had continued, would have crippled the war effort. In 1942 British imports fell by 5 million tonnes, imposing severe strains on food and oil supplies the latter were reduced by about 15 million by about 15% uh, requiring the government to dip into its admittedly large strategic stockpiles this was uh, attribu- attributable less to Dernitz than to the diversion of 200 ships from the atlantic shuttle to open an arctic supply line to russia whatever the causes however Britain's shrunken deliveries alarmed the nation with its back to the wall in many theatres and three dimensions. So, this provides us with a, a kind of an, another interesting point, another interesting clue here: that the opening of the Arctic convoy to supply Soviet Russia um, was, was a, a key factor in actually. Um, the, the the lack of overall shipping for British domestic needs. Um, and this perhaps, um, you know, occupied the minds of uh, the uh, British, of the Allied planners at the time. And sometimes there are, there are things that occur in war that only future historians are going to be able to make sense of or or sort of look at the uh, the wider picture of that um, leaders at the time have precious little ability to to discern you know because these things are complicated and chaotic now looking at the question of air power over the Atlantic um, which was a, another key reason why the um, German u-boats began to uh, lose their effectiveness and, and to be destroyed, Max Hastings, Hastings writes. Even when the US supplied Britain with a few B-24 liberators suitable for very long, uh, long-range conversion and this um, ideal for Atlantic convoy support, initially the RAF chose to use, them, um, uh, use most of them elsewhere. Sir Arthur Bomber Harris, um, the commander-in-chief of Bomber Command 1942-45, fiercely resisted the diversion of heavy aircraft to the convoy war. It was a continual fight against the Navy to stop them, uh, as usual, pinching everything, Said Harris, who disliked British sailors almost as much as he abhorred the Germans. half my energies were given to save Bomber Command uh, from the other services. The Navy and the Army were always trying to belittle the work of the Air Force, The Atlantic Gap, the area of ocean beyond the range of land-based cover, remained the focus of U-boat activity until 1943. An average of just over one convoy a week each way made the North Atlantic passage. Many crossed without suffering attack because the Germans did not locate them. Ultra-intercepts of U-boat position reports together with Huff Duff high frequency direction finding by warships often made it possible to divert convoys away from the the, uh, enemy concentrations. One statistical calculation suggests that in the second six months of 1941 alone, Ultra saved between 1.5 and 2 million tonnes of Allied shipping from destruction. Ultra of course being the uh, decryption system uh, at Bletchley Park where the uh, decryption of the um, uh, German Enigma code. For a few months in uh, in 1941 American escorts protected convoys east of Iceland but after Pearl Harbour these were withdrawn. Canadian corvettes took up the strain, and the Royal Navy assumed responsibility once ships entered the western approaches throughout nineteen forty one to forty three the key period of the Battle of the Atlantic, the Admiralty supplied fifty percent of all the escorts, the royal canadian, canadian navy forty six percent and the American vessels made up the balance so american ships forty one to forty three um, as kind of convoy um, uh, convoy ships make up very, very little of, uh, of, of, of the um, actual uh, tonnage of shipping uh, escorting Allied convoys. Yet if the, if the German offensive was mismanaged, especially in 1941-42, Allied merchant seamen suffered grievously from its consequences. Crews were drawn from many nationalities, though some young British chose the merchant service in preference to conscription into the armed forces. It would be hard to argue that this represented a soft option. Uh, some seamen were obliged to abandon ship two or three times. So, we'll look more in a, a future podcast about the experiences of uh, merchant seamen um, at war. I, I think there is an important point here. You know, we've been looking at what a kind of a macro picture we've been looking at um, statistically the entire war and saying you know this that 99% figure um, that does actually suggest that we've kind of radically overestimated the, uh, the, 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 the danger that the U-boats posed. But when you look at it in a kind of on, on a micro level. When you look at um, the, actual, um, the, the, the actual, the the actual destruction, and what it must have been like to go overboard, uh, to uh, go into into the water, or onto a life raft, um, these are um, you know truly, truly. Terrifying, um, terrifying happen- happenings, and there were merchant sailors who were um, who survived and were have been torpedoed several times. So, macro macro pictures never really tell us the micro story, um, but we we will kind of get into that into that later. So, what, what can we extrapolate here uh, about the, um, the war itself? Well, as with so many aspects of the Second World War, once the initial phase of successes was over, once Germany had, um, had the victories on land and sea that it was going to have, it was very difficult for Germany to continue to replicate those. Um, there's a reason why you know the year of 1940 is referred by U-boat commanders as the happy times, and after that, it, the the uh, the happy times go into, into rapid decline. Um, the the war that Hitler was trying to fight, um, as it mentions here, is a lot of improvisation. It is the very often the wrong tools for the wrong job, and the initial successes are often based on a lack of allied preparedness little dumb luck uh, and a, a range of other factors which convinced Hitler the inveterate gambler that anything and everything was possible continuously possible something his general staff and the heads of the Kriegsmarine hotly disputed um, but because of the degree of micromanagement and authoritarianism in military decision making um it becomes harder and harder for those that really know what they're doing to be able to uh, have influence anyway um we'll we'll look at that again um soon i'd quite like talking about the the battle of the atlantic Um, Some interesting stuff coming up in in January. So the first ever Explaining History Academy, to give it its true and pretentious title, uh, study course is going to be ready sometime mid-January. We're starting off by looking at Russia from um, 1856 to 1953. So from the Crimean War to the death of Stalin. Um, and so it's kind of, it's mainly geared up for students. Um, so there's going to be plenty of, of stuff in there on how to study um, writing st- study techniques, how to think like history, and all that kind of stuff, which I'll, I'll bore you with more later on. But if you're a generalist and you just want to understand the history of Russia in the 19th and 20th centuries, um dive right in um anyway i'll be posting links to it um and uh, i'm sure it'll be useful um so keep your eyes eyes peeled for that one anyway that bit of uh, advertising puff let's finish up and i'll catch you on the next explaining history podcast all the best bye-bye